Chapter 3. Jesus is coming back to the earth. If your church has been telling you that your objective as a Christian, your goal, is, quote, heaven, I believe they've been making the Bible a confusing book for you. If at funerals they've been sending the dead to heaven, alive and glorified, they've been offering you a pagan philosophical concept, not the teaching of Jesus. It was the pagan philosopher Plato, not Jesus, who taught that, quote, souls go to heaven. Plato is given lots of scope in churches. What would you think of someone who is convinced that the objective in a game of soccer is to kick the ball as high as possible into the air, not to kick it through the goalposts? You would consider such an opinion to be totally misguided and uninstructed. From childhood, the church has been telling you that, quote, going to heaven when you die is the objective of the Christian faith. I propose that this concept puts you seriously at loggerheads with Jesus and the apostles, who believed no such thing. Jesus promised, quote, heaven at death to none of his followers. He told them that they should aspire to, quote, inherit the earth or land. And this is precisely the same as inheriting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be set up in the land of Israel and across the whole earth. That marvelous event is the subject of Christian prayer. We are taught to pray, may your kingdom come. If you're prepared to believe Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 5, that the, quote, meek, are going to have the earth as their inheritance, you've taken a major step towards understanding the gospel of the kingdom, towards following the biblical story intelligently and accurately. Try dropping the word, quote, heaven from your vocabulary about the life to come and see if you experience a marked improvement in your comprehension of the Bible, indeed in your spiritual health. You do not need pagan philosophical ideas in your mind. You need truth as Jesus and the Bible teaches it. Greek philosophy and the Bible do not mix well at all, and if they are mixed, they produce a spiritual poison. What possible sense is there in preaching or believing Plato in the name of Jesus? We have a set of three CDs entitled Platonic Christianity, in which a missionary, Edward Acton, complains of the dangers of platonic philosophy which has crept into the churches and is firmly embedded in our mostly unquestioned traditional teaching. The fact is that the Bible says nothing about going to heaven as a, quote, soul when you die. Nothing at all. What Jesus and the Bible do teach is that everyone who dies as a successful Christian will be brought back to life at what is called the resurrection. And that resurrection is going to happen when Jesus comes back to begin his new government or kingdom on earth. You can grasp this simple system and program once and for all by reading 1 Corinthians 15 verses 22 to 28. Paul is here discussing the sequence of events in regard to the resurrection. Only one person has been already resurrected, brought back from death to permanent life. That is Jesus.
The Christians of all the ages will be resurrected at Jesus' future coming. Here are Paul's words. In Christ all will be made alive, but each one in proper order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. That's to say, the Christians. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. The plan for resurrection is not complex. Those who are Christians will be raised to life, resurrected, that is, at the coming of Jesus. They will have been dead, and then they will come to life again. They will then inherit the earth with Jesus. They will take part in a new worldwide government, which is going to work. I think you will not find it hard to understand that it is fearfully confusing to point you in one direction, quote, heaven at death, when the Bible points you in a completely different direction. We all know how devastatingly frustrating it is to be told that a certain event is going to happen at a particular place and time, when that event is to be held at a different time and at a different place. While Jesus points you toward the kingdom of God to be established on earth when he comes back, the church has been promising you a place in, quote, heaven the moment you die. The place is wrong, you're not going to heaven. The timing is wrong, you're not going anywhere alive the moment you die. You're going to, quote, be asleep in the grave for however much time elapses between your death and the future arrival of Jesus to bring in the kingdom on earth. This is the biblical program from start to finish. This is the framework of the whole Bible story, the outline of God's great plan. You are alive now. If you are a true believer when you die, you will, quote, go to sleep in death and rest in the grave until Jesus comes back. R.I.P., rest in peace, is correct. The dead are indeed resting in peace, and when Jesus comes back, he will bring all the faithful dead out of their graves, making them alive again and giving them immortality and a place in his royal government, the kingdom of God, the subject of his gospel. This is essentially a simple and comprehensible story. It is confirmed throughout the Bible. Try reading the New Testament with this, quote, model in mind and see if it does not make perfect sense. I believe that all the New Testament writers shared this straightforward account of God's immortality program. When Job asked the great question about, quote, life after death, he said, and I quote, if a person dies, will he live again? That's found in Job 14, verse 14. Notice he did not say, if a man dies, will he go on living? That is quite a different question. Job did not expect to go on living after he was dead. This would be a confusing contradiction. A person who is continuing to live does not have to be, quote, made alive at the resurrection, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. But the Bible teaches that the dead are to remain dead until they are made alive at the resurrection, which Jesus will bring about when he returns. This is a simple and coherent program of events. We all need to live in the certain knowledge that this is what God intends to do. 
using Jesus as his human agent. Quote, the dead know nothing at all, says scripture in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5. The dead Lazarus is asleep, and I'm going to call him out of his tomb, says Jesus in John 11 verse 11 and 14. But churches have demonstrated their impatience with Jesus and his viewpoint. They have wanted to, so to speak, jump the gun and promise their followers an immediate conscious presence in heaven the moment they die and not a moment later. Churches have ruined one of the greatest of all teachings, the future resurrection of dead persons. The survival of a, quote, immortal soul is not a biblical teaching at all, but rather an import from pagan philosophy. Paul warned against philosophy in Colossians 2 verse 8. I quote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. If you have taken on board unbiblical philosophy, you have been taken captive and you need to be made free by learning truth. Jesus said that, quote, the truth will make you free, John 8, verse 32. You can see what happens when the Bible's hope is replaced with a non-hope invented by church tradition. If we are to go conscious to glory, the moment we die, what possible sense is there in Jesus coming back to restore the dead to life? And what need is there for a kingdom following that resurrection? Resurrection means, quote, standing up again from the condition of death. Why would we need to come back to life if we are already alive before that time? It makes no sense at all. The Bible is against the idea of making the dead alive apart from resurrection in the future. Note this. Various religious groups seem to be mesmerized by the idea of spirit beings. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was a spirit, angel being, and thus not really human. Mormons hold that Jesus was the spirit brother of Satan, and that God chose Jesus to come down to the earth. Other churches tell their adherents to pray to invisible spirits of departed saints. The Anglican Church thinks of departed saints as somehow in communion with the living. The most spectacular event of the whole of human history will be the second coming of Jesus. His parousia, that's the Greek word for the second coming. Jesus was born the Son of God by a miraculous generation and conception in Mary. He died in his thirties. He now sits with God in heaven as the only one who has gone to heaven at death. Jesus is now immortal, the pioneer and forerunner of the whole of God's immortality program. Jesus is waiting now at the right hand of God, a position of supreme authority next to God, until he's given the signal to leave heaven and return to the earth. Angels said, and I quote, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come 
in just the same way as you've watched him go to heaven. You'll find that in Acts 1, verse 11. And when he comes, he's going to bring the faithful dead back to life, back to life from death. They're going to live again, and when they do, it will seem as if no time has passed since they closed their eyes in death. For confirmation of this idea, see F.F. F. Bruce, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Together with the Christians who survive until Jesus comes, the resurrected Christians will be together with Jesus forever and they will take part in restoring sanity to our shattered world. Both they and Jesus will be together here on this planet. Jesus promised his followers not that they will, quote, go to heaven, but they will inherit the land or the earth. That's in Matthew 5, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians gives us one of Paul's clearest descriptions of the future return of Jesus to raise the Christians who have died. I quote, And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died, so you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus comes, see the New English Bible here, God will bring to life with Jesus all the Christians who have died. I can tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And by this process, we will be with him forever. So, comfort and encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. The picture here gives us the following facts. Jesus is going to reappear in the sky and the dead Christians will be resurrected back to life, leaving the graves where they've been asleep in death. Together with the Christians still alive on earth at that time, they will be caught up, that's to say, raptured to meet the Lord Jesus in the air and then escort him down to the earth where he will take up his position as rightful ruler of the kingdom of God. The popular idea that Jesus will come back secretly seven years before he comes back in power and glory has no foundation in the Bible. It's an invented myth. When Jesus arrives, the event will be spectacular and visible. The idea of Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus will be invisible at his second coming, or that he came back in 1914, or as some say, an earlier date, has no basis at all in the Bible. When Jesus arrives, the event will be spectacular 
and visible. Every eye will see him. Revelation 1 verse 7. Jesus is returning to the earth. He's certainly not going to snatch the Christians away to heaven for seven years. This would not be a second coming at all, but a sort of, quote, drive-by. It would be a visit rather than a permanent return. When someone says that they're going to the store and will be back in a few moments, we have no difficulty understanding plain words, nor should we have any problem with Jesus' promise that he's going to come back to the earth and reside here. While we're talking about Jesus coming back, please note the wrong translation of the New International Version in John 16, 28 and John 20, verse 17, where Jesus said nothing about going back to the Father. The Greek simply says that Jesus was going or ascending to the Father, not going back because he had not been there in heaven before. If Jesus does not come back, then there will be no real second coming and no kingdom on the earth with Jesus as king in Jerusalem. This would make the gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus a fraud. I'm sure you can see how important it is to know that the dead Christians are not now alive. If we know that the dead are presently unconscious in their graves, peacefully asleep, we immediately concentrate our attention on the future wonderful moment when Jesus reappears in the sky, brings the sleeping dead back to life, and comes down to the earth. And once we concentrate on that mighty event, we immediately center our entire interest on the kingdom of God, which is going to begin in power on earth worldwide when Jesus comes back. This is the Christian hope and, of course, the Christian gospel. Going to heaven when we die is simply a clever diversion which confuses and distracts us from the biblical story and Jesus' good news about the kingdom. Heaven at death makes intelligent Bible reading almost impossible because our church story is not the story of the Bible. There are two incompatible stories which cannot be harmonized. The whole great kingdom plan becomes a huge model in the minds of churchgoers once the ultimate goal, the kingdom at Jesus' return, is abandoned in favor of a, quote, comforting promise that our so-called souls are with Jesus long before the kingdom comes. The quote, heaven at death tradition places a filter between you and the words of Scripture. Paul gave a strong warning against any who taught that one can be alive before the future resurrection. He even named two men and said, I quote, their teaching will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are an example of this. They have wandered away from the truth by saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they have overthrown the faith of some. You'll find that in 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 and 18. Churches have proposed a similar mistake 
by claiming that the dead are alive before the future resurrection. But it is cold comfort to offer someone a hope which is not in the Bible. The hope of going to heaven at death is absent from Scripture. It's a later invention of man and of churches. The church's story contains a dreadful dislocation of the Bible story. Jesus had learned the Bible story very well. He looked forward to the kingdom of God, of which he is to be the king, when he comes back. At that moment of future arrival in triumph, Jesus will call back to life all those who have died as his obedient followers. It will be one huge collective return to life every one of the believers from Old Testament and New Testament times together in one mass. Not individual departures of, quote, souls to heaven, but a collective coming back to life of all the faithful of all the ages at one wonderful moment. Those who propose a different resurrection for the Old Testament saints, separating them from their fellow Christian believers of New Testament times, separate Abraham from the New Testament faithful. Abraham, however, is, quote, the father of the faithful, Romans 4, verse 11, and will be in the first resurrection with all the Christians. Try reading the Bible, and especially the New Testament, with the sequence of events in mind which we have outlined above. See how beautifully it will fit and how it will make sense of the whole Bible story from Genesis to Revelation. In this way, you will be grasping the Christian hope and believing the gospel about the kingdom which Jesus, quote, promised to those who love him. James 2 verse 5. You will also be grasping the Bible's teaching about resurrection, which is the return to life of whole people, not the joining back together of a surviving conscious so-called soul and a body. When Jesus comes back to raise the dead and reward them for their service in his kingdom gospel mission, the world will gradually experience a wonderful restoration. See Acts 3 verse 21 and Acts 1 verse 6. A major factor in that new age coming is that Satan, who is currently deceiving the whole world, Revelation 12 verse 9, will be put out of commission. At the arrival of Jesus to rule in his kingdom, an angel will arrest the devil, bind him, and imprison him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. At that time, the faithful will begin to reign with the Messiah on a renewed earth. Here is one of the clearest and most important Bible verses outlining God's great plan for you and for the world. I quote, They sang a new hymn. Worthy are you, Jesus, to receive the scroll and to break open its seals, for you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Jesus had earlier said, quote, Blessed are the meek, they are going to have the earth as their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5. Every time people talk of, quote, going to heaven, they contradict Jesus' promise and obstruct an intelligent grasp of what God and Jesus promise to the believers. The event of the second coming means a severe judgment on those who have refused to take part in God's immortality program through Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. I advise you to consult the amazing words of the great prophet Isaiah. In his kingdom vision, he saw what God, through his servant Jesus, intends to do to present evil governments and people. Let me rehearse these words for you. You have here an advanced picture of the state of affairs which accompanies the future intervention of Jesus at his second coming. I quote, Look, the Lord is about to destroy the earth and make it a vast wasteland. See how he is scattering the people over the face of the earth, priests and lay people, servants and masters, maids and mistresses, buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers, bankers and debtors, none will be spared. The earth will be completely emptied and looted. The Lord has spoken. The earth dries up, the crops wither, the skies refuse to rain. The earth suffers for the sins of its people, for they have twisted the instructions of God, violated his laws, and broken his everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse consumes the earth and its people. They are left desolate, destroyed by fire. Few will be left alive. All the joys of life will be gone. The grape harvest will fail, and there will be no more wine. The merrymakers will sigh and mourn. The clash of tambourines will be stilled. The happy cries of celebration will be heard no more. The melodious chords of the harp will be silent. Gone are the joys of wine and song. Strong drink now turns bitter in the mouth. The city writhes in chaos. Every home is locked to keep out looters. Mobs gather in the streets, crying out for wine. Joy has reached its lowest ebb. Gladness has been banished from the land. The city is left in ruins with its gates battered down. Throughout the earth, the story is the same. Like the stray olives left on the tree or the few grapes left on the vine after harvest, only a remnant is left. But all who are left will shout and sing for joy. Those in the west will praise the Lord's majesty. In eastern lands, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, praise the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to them as they sing to the Lord from the ends of the earth. Hear them singing praises to the righteous one. But my heart is heavy with grief. I'm discouraged for evil still prevails and treachery is everywhere. Terror and traps and snares will be your lot, you people of the earth. Those who flee in terror will fall into a trap, and those who escape the trap will step into a snare. Destruction 
falls on you from the heavens. The world is shaken beneath you. The earth has broken down and has utterly collapsed. Everything is lost, abandoned, and confused. The earth staggers like a drunkard. It trembles like a tent in a storm. It falls and will not rise again, for its sins are very great. In that day the Lord will punish the fallen angels in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations on earth. They will be rounded up and put in prison until they are tried and condemned. Then the Lord Almighty will mount his throne on Mount Zion. He will rule gloriously in Jerusalem in the sight of all the leaders of his people. There will be such glory that the brightness of the sun and moon will seem to fade away. That whole section was a reading from Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. This is a vivid picture straight from the pen of one of the great Bible prophets, Isaiah. You will see that he describes a calamity and catastrophe of which we have seen some very slight parallel in our days. We all know about the destructive tsunami and the terrifying hurricanes which destroyed so many people and so much property. Such events show that God's power, as he's ordained it in nature, can be devastating. In the future, God will express his fury at the sinfulness of man deliberately. The second coming of Jesus is compared in the prophets to an earthquake and a powerful storm. We are meant to learn from what we are now seeing that God's power should impress on us our infinite frailty. God will deal with human wickedness. He will deal with this deliberately on what is called, quote, the day of the Lord. A vast depopulation of the world will occur this is the future and final intervention of God when he sends his beloved son back to the earth. That day is described in the long passage we just cited above. Many of the prophets wrote about this coming, quote, day of the Lord or the day of his fierce anger. There will be international confusion, destruction and despair. It will affect all types of people. Jesus spoke of, quote, people's hearts failing them for fear at the things coming upon the earth. Luke 21, verse 26. But note the outcome of God's intervention. Quote, a few persons will be left when the day of the Lord is over. Isaiah 24, verse 6 says this expressly. Please take careful note of the fact that not every human person will be wiped out. That would leave the world vacant, and there is actually a large denomination which has misleadingly taught that not a single mortal person will be left alive on earth. That is plainly not true. There is an exact parallel here with the flood of Noah's time. A tiny fraction of the human population emerged unscathed from the protective ark. Noah, his wife, and three children and their wives escaped death at that time. The rest of mankind was drowned in a colossal judgment event 
which Jesus said is parallel and similar to his own future coming. Listen to the words of Jesus. Because, as in a thunderstorm, the bright light coming from the east is seen even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 27. Jesus will arrive in power to save the world from a time of chaos and confusion. The good news is that Jesus is coming back. But what about the bad news which precedes it? Jesus said, and I quote, In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So be prepared, because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Know this. A homeowner who knew exactly when a burglar was coming would stay alert and not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. That's in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 44. Paul's most vivid and powerful description of the second coming of Jesus is found in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul wrote to the Christians, I quote, God will provide relief for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, is, quote, author of salvation for those who obey him. Hebrews 5, verse 9. There is more to salvation than just believing that Jesus died to cover our sins, essential as this, of course, is. I think you're getting the picture of the future clear. First, the bad times, the destruction of the careless and unprepared, then the survival of a few, and then the kingdom of God, which will reconstruct humanity, beginning with the surviving remnant. The kingdom will restore peace and order to the whole world. Indescribable conditions will, under Jesus' supervision, extend across the globe. The kingdom of God, consisting of Jesus as king and the faithful then immortalized, will reign from Jerusalem. All the prophets of Israel forecast this ideal future for our world. Begin to read the prophets of the Old Testament and see what a beautiful vision of the future of the world they present. The prayer, quote, may your kingdom come, is going to be answered. Remember that your part in this grand prospect for the earth is to prepare in advance for the kingdom to escape the judgment 
not by being taken to heaven, and then to gain immortality and rule with Jesus in the kingdom which he is going to put in place when he comes.